Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for my Parsha Share live on Zoom, also on YouTube, also on SoundCloud. You can find it on my YouTube channel. If you want to subscribe, just go to the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, um, somewhere over there, and uh, you can uh, just click on that and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And, of course, you can subscribe to the SoundCloud channel. I can't tell you where to do that on screen, but I'm sure if you go on SoundCloud, you can find me. Uh, and of course, all of my Shirim articles, podcasts are available on my website, www.rabbidonna.com. This week's Parsha Shir is sponsored by my dear friends, Aaron and Lillian Fuchs, and their son, Jason Fuchs. It's in memory of Lillian's brother, Jason's uncle, Jack Julius Glatter, Yaakov Yehuda ben Yitzchok, Zichrona Levrocha. His yacht site is on the 14th of Kislev. His neshama should have an aliyah. And we should all be zeichet to see Tchias HaMesim. Parshas Vayetze. It's always, I mention this, I think, every year. It's a special parsha in the Dunna household, where I come from, where I was brought up, because it was my late father's bar mitzvah parsha. And he would always say, I'm not sure if in jest, but there was certainly a twinkle in his eye, all good things can be found in Parshas Vayetze. Of course, the Torah is the fount of all knowledge, but in Parshas Vayetze it's concentrated, and no doubt that's why it was chosen for him to be born that week, and that's why it was his Bar Mitzvah Parsha. But this week we're going to focus on one curious medrash, and we're going to see if we can make some sense of it, because this medrash, it's very well known, we learnt it in school. I remember that... uh, uh, at school, uh, when we learnt this Rashi, we could all kind of visualise it. It's a bit cartoonish, the Medrash, and I want to try and make some sense of it now that I'm an adult. We're all adults now, hopefully, that we can look at this Medrash, make sense of it, learn something from it, and uh, come away from having studied it without thinking of it in cartoon terms. Let's look at the uh, a couple of psukim right at the beginning of Parshas Vayetze, just to describe the backdrop to the scene. Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, he's got himself caught in quite a mess. Esau, his brother, is out to kill him. His father is none too happy with him, even though he said, Gamboruch Jacob, Yaakov, had come to, um, to, ya- to Yitzchok um, in disguise as Esau, got the brochus, and Rivka, his mother, of whom he was the favourite child, told him, I think it's time for you to escape, get away from here, let your brother not be caught in a fratricidal situation where he's going to kill you, go to my brother in Choron, find yourself a wife, obviously, and come back when the time is right. And that was the beginning of at least a 20-year break between Yaakov Avinu leaving and Yaakov Avinu returning. And then, of course, if you take into account the Medrash that says that he learnt uh, for 14 years in the Yeshiva of Shem Ever, the break between when he saw his parents and then saw them again was 34 years. That being the case, how did he leave? What happened when he left? Well, it was a very dramatic situation. He ran away with uh, literally the shirt on his back. Whether or not it was Eliphaz who stole everything from him, or whether he simply ran away uh, with nothing but uh, bread to eat 
and water to drink so that he could get away as quickly as possible, not uh, be traipsing around uh, with a large caravan like Eliezer had when he had gone to Choron to find a wife for Yitzchok. But he finds himself completely on his own. Vayifka b'mokoim, says the Torah, without really describing what that mokoim is. He reached a place. Vayifka b'mokoim, it's in Perik Chofches, Posukyud Aleph, Imbracious. He came, let's say b'mokoim means to a certain place. We know that um, the Talmudic sages inform us that that place was the mokoim hamikdosh. It was a place that had previously already been hallowed because it was the place upon which Yitzchok had lain on an altar as Avraham Avinu Abraham was about to slaughter him in the story of the Akedah. So he was coming back to a place which had um, family connections and specifically connections in terms of prophecy, of spiritual awareness, of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, both on the part of Abraham Avinu and Yitzchak Avinu, and here he was also in a pretty difficult, challenging situation. He reaches the place and he stops there. He's going to stay there overnight because the sun is setting. And here's where the ambiguity creeps in, as we're going to see during the course of this year. The ambiguity being that he took from the rocks or stones of the place. How many stones did he take? So the implication of the Medrash is that he took many stones because Avne is in the plural. Also a little bit ambiguous because it could mean he took one of the stones or rocks from the many rocks or stones in that place. But that's the way the Medrash interprets it. The Medrash is telling us that, that he took many stones from that place. Why would he take them? Interesting word, the root of it is the word Rosh. He surrounded his head with these rocks. He created like a gutter, like some type of protective um, moat around his head. And he rested, he slept there in that place. He lay down there. Now, I'm not going to go into everything else that happened in between Posugud Aleph and Posugud Ches because we're now jumping ahead. I'll just tell you that, the, that there was this very famous dream of Jacob's ladder, angels going up, angels coming down. God appeared to him, promised him all kinds of things. This was the um, primary moment of Yaakov's life in terms of his personal covenant with God, where he was inheriting the promises that had been made to Avraham and Yitzchak, and he would hand those promises over to his children, and eventually we see them recrystallized in a prophecy between Moshe and God. So this is, in a sense, the pivotal moment of Yaakov Avinu's life. And at the end of it, he woke up in the morning after he'd had this revelatory dream, this vision. So here you have that discrepancy between the Avne of before, the rocks, the stones mentioned earlier in Pasigud Aleph, now in Pasigud Ches. It says, He took the stone that he had placed around his head. And he established it as a Matseva, which we tend to 
translated as monument, it can also mean pillar, it can also mean Matseva has as a connotation an altar, uh, but he established it there by Yitzhak Shemen Arosha and he poured oil on top of it. Again, I'm not going to carry on further in the story, it's these two psukim which are key to what the shir is going to be about. You saw that in the first posuk is Me'avne Hamokim, and then the second posuk is Vayikach Es Ho'even. Rocks and rock or stones and stone. Title of this shear is From Stones to Stone. Let's see if we can work out, based on the medrash, the rather fanciful medrash that Chazal put together surrounding this discrepancy, this ambiguity. Let's see if we can take some meaning from the change from Avne, Avonim in the plural, to Even in the singular. Says Rashi, quoting the Chazal. He placed them around, or placed it, it's not clear, right? Around his head. He arranged them in the form of a gutter around his head. Why? He was frightened of wild animals. How a gutter of stones around his head would protect him from wild animals is not made clear. Perhaps that's a shear for another time. But that's what Rashi says. In any event, what occurred? These stones began arguing with each other. They were very disappointed, most upset. Why were they upset? One of the stones said to all the others, I want the holy man's head on my uh, position, on me. I want it, my, my, myself, to be the resting place for this holy man's head. The Zoysai Meretz, no, Olay Oniach. And the other rock said, no, I want him to lie his head on me. Miyad Asan HaKadosh Baruch Evan Achas. As a result of this dispute, this discord among the stones, I told you it was a bit cartoonish, God turned the rocks into a rock. He turned the stones into a stone. Vezehu shenemar, and this is why it says later on in Posuk Yudches, says Rashi, He took the stone as opposed to the stones that he had placed around his head. How are we to understand that? I remember years ago I heard Drabzev Lef. He gave a drosha here in Los Angeles at Eula. And it was Parshas Vayetze. He asked a good question. He said, how exactly does it help if God turned the stone into uh, the stones into one stone? How exactly is that meant to help? Because ultimately your head can only rest in one place. So when it's resting on one particular stone, all the other stones have been excluded. Okay, so you might think, okay, so if now the um, the head is resting on one particular place in one stone that somehow that that solves the problem why exactly does it solve the problem all the other places where there were other stones still don't have the tzaddik's head on them so how are we meant to understand that they're still suffering they're still going to be upset because they're not part that part of the stone on which Yaakov was resting his head he said, you know what, let's take the human body. If somebody steps on your hand, what happens as soon as that person steps on your hand or your foot? You say, ow, why do you say ow? 
because a message is passed through your nervous system to your brain that causes pain and therefore you say ow your mouth is saying ow not your hand why doesn't your hand say ow because your hand is connected to your head which is connected to your mouth and therefore the reaction is from your body as a whole there's no such thing as the hand does it but the foot doesn't or the right hand does it so therefore the left hand is upset it's all part of one united body when you're part of one thing you've got nothing to complain about even if one other aspect of that thing is doing something that doesn't mean you are excluded as it were I mean, we're talking here in in odd and strange terms but i think you get my meaning that if my hand is holding these glasses we don't say well his right hand is holding the glasses but the left hand's got nothing to do with it because my right hand is holding the glasses means that i am holding the glasses by the way my mouth isn't holding them my left hand isn't holding them they're not on my head but i have the glasses they are part of what it is that i am doing as a whole therefore when it became an Even as opposed to Avnei Hamokoim, then every part of that Even was satisfied, even though one part of that Even became the resting place for Yaakov of Inu's head. You're going to see that this Vort, this idea of Rabbi Lef that I heard so many years ago, is something that we're going to focus on in much greater detail as we try and extract meaning from this clearly fanciful Medrash, because... I don't need to tell you that rocks can't speak. You know that the um, the Hebrew terminology for a rock is a doimeim. What does a doimeim mean? Something that can't speak. A doimeim, it's, it's a form of creation that has no ability to communicate. It can't even communicate with noise. And there's three levels of creation above a doimeim. A rock, a stone can't communicate. So what does it mean that the rocks were arguing? It has no meaning. It has to have meaning beyond its literal understanding. And therefore, let's try and extrapolate that meaning. Let's see what we can find. First, let's look at the Kli Yokar. He quotes the Pasuk and he says as follows. Once he had seen he had heard from Hashem directly that this is a place of God, that this is the Mokoim. It's Hamokoim. This is the ultimate source of spiritual energy in the world. It's such an important place that even the sun can be held up as it was for him so that he could get there and, be, and spend the night there. Apparently, the sun didn't set that day at the time that it should have. It's paused and dawdled on the horizon so that he could get there during daytime and that's where he would stop and that's where he would rest his head. If that's the level of importance of this place, he took from the, from the uh, stones, the rocks of this place, he put them as a guard around his head. So this, the Kliyokar is explaining that it's not to do with Chayos Rois. He put these holy stones around his head, the head being the seat of the intellect. It is the seat of all knowledge and wisdom. And therefore, he put it around, he put the rocks around his head as a demonstration of how important um, this place is to him. He recognizes its 
great significance. Velokach yud base avonim. Now, according to one of the medrashim, I'm not going to. By the way, there's three medrashim. Rashi summarizes them. There's three medrashim. One says that there were twelve stones. One says that there were three, and one says there were two. We'll go with the twelve because that's the one which is most widely accepted as correct. Keneged yud base shvotim. He took twelve stones, each one of them corresponding to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to have 12 sons. Each one of those sons was going to lead a portion of the Jewish people, was going to be the head of a family that was going to make up the Jewish nation altogether. And he took one rock for each of those. And he quotes the Medrash, all of the stones were arguing with each other. Until they were made into one stone. So each one of these 12 stones was arguing with the other one saying, I want Yaakov's head, daddy's head, on me. And the other one was saying, no, let me have his head on me. And what was he doing? And this entire incident was in some... Um, mystical way, even though he's quoting the Rambam from Meir in some mystical way it was a hint as to what was going to happen in the future. God was hinting, God was indicating through this incident with the 12 stones and that they're going to come into one, that this was a place that was going to be central both in terms of its spiritual sanctity, this is where the temple was going to be built, and in terms of its uh, importance as far as the monarchy was concerned, the royal family was going to be based also in this location in Yerushalayim. And Kadesha Loyiyah Meriva Ben Hashvotim. And the entire... Um, this concept of the twelve fusing into one is because there should never be a disagreement, a dispute between uh, the different Shvatim as to who has ownership over this particular holy place, who has uh, um, control over it. Every single one of the Shvatim is going to want this holy place and they shouldn't fight over it. It shouldn't end up being a source of friction between the different tribes of Israel. Every tribe would come to this central location and feel a sense of shared ownership over this important place. At the moment when um, uh, David HaMelech, King David, bought this from the Jebusite. He bought the site, by the way, this was the last location in Eretz Yisrael that was conquered. And it was hundreds of years after Yehoshua had come from the wilderness, leading the Jewish nation into the Holy Land. They had never managed to conquer this location, and in the end it wasn't even conquered. Even though they knew it was a holy place, um, David HaMelech managed to obtain it from the Jebusite. And it, they took over Yerushalayim. How did he buy it? How did he buy this piece of land, this, I mean, can you imagine a more important piece of real estate than Harabais? Harhamariah? How did he buy it? He took money from all the tribes. Every single tribe had a share 
in obtaining, in buying, in purchasing this piece of real estate on which the Beis Hamikdash was built and which so long before, so many years earlier, Yaakov Avinu had lain overnight and rested his head on, on stones that had become one single stone. In which case now we understand that this dispute that took place between the stones, Venasul Asaf Eben Achas, and ultimately they fused together to become one stone. This was a sign and a wonder for something that was going to happen in the future. The whole idea here is Chazal are um, going back in time to explain how the Mokim Hamikdash, how this incredibly important geographic location for the Jewish nation is something that at the dawn of our history was uh, settled upon as something that belonged to everybody. Yaakov Avinu had taken all the 12 Shvatim in the form of these little stones, put them around his head, they'd become one, and this was a sign that in the future this Beis Hamikdash location would serve as a Beis Hamikdash lo location no less for one tribe than for another. In fact, all were equal. Ultimately, that's what it means that each one wanted that the Beis Hamikdash should be in their domain. But now it became possible because David HaMelech bought it from money that came from all the tribes. They all became one stone because David took the money from all of them. And now we're going to go to the Shemish Shmuel. Um, I, I'm going to um, read you. I've actually included the Hebrew here, um, which I've taken from the original text of the Shemish Shmuel. Uh, uh, my dear friend, Rabbi Harvey, Rabbi Tzvi Belovsky of Golders Green Synagogue, uh, put out a book some years ago in which he translated some parts of the Shemish Shmuel, I think two for each week, and he has since allowed for that text to be um, put onto the aish.com website. And I've taken that translation, I've included it here in my source sheet, and I'm extremely grateful to Rabbi Belovsky uh, for allowing us to use this material uh, to give a share. But I want to share with you what the Shem Mishmul has to say about this um, prophesied unity of the Jewish nation and the purpose of it and what conclusions we are meant to draw. The beginning of the Torah portion, the beginning of Vayetze, describes Yaakov's departure from Beersheba when he left Beersheba and he went on his way to Choron and he dreamt uh, about the ladder and the angels going up and down. And before he lay, lay down to sleep, we know that he took Vayikach me Avne Amokoim, as we said earlier, we quoted the Posuk, he took it and he put he put them around his head, after he'd had the dream. Now he'd woken up and we discover that this Avne Hamokoim situation had become, it became one stone and he took that stone and he established it as a matzeva over which he poured oil. And the Medrash, as we've already discussed, sees the discrepancy between these two psukim, was it one stone, was it many stones, etc., and assumes that the many stones had become one and they created this dialogue. Rabbi Yehuda said he took 12 stones as God had decreed so that he would establish 12 
tribes and these 12 stones corresponded to the 12 tribes that he would later have. And Yaakov said, and this is what the Medrash actually says, this is an expanded form of the Medrash, Avram didn't establish tribes, Yitzchak never established tribes, but for me, if these 12 stones become one, then I know that my destiny is to establish 12 tribes. And when they became one, he knew that he was going to establish the 12 tribes. So we see here that the Medrash actually takes this idea a little bit further. That Yaakov Avinu was very deliberate in the 12 stones. It wasn't just that he knew that he might have 12 tribes. In fact, there was some uncertainty. He was hoping that he would. But then again, it was a possibility that Avram Avinu would have 12 tribes. He didn't. He only had one son who was worthy. He had a son called Yitzhak. There was another son called Yishmael and many other children, by the way, which he had from Keturah. But none of them amounted to anything in terms of the legacy of monotheism for the future of humanity. So he had Yitzhak. What happened to Yitzhak? Did he have 12 tribes? No, he had two children. What happened to those two children? Well, only one of them turned out to be the one that could continue in that legacy. Now, Yaakov Avinu, looking back uh, on what he had inherited from his father and his grandfather, imagined that there's two paths or two possibilities open to him. One possibility is, this is what the Medrash seems to be implying, one possibility is that he's going to continue in the same way as his father and his grandfather. Have one worthy son. Now, that one worthy son could become the father of a nation. But he didn't know that for sure. He didn't know what was going to happen. He hoped, he knew that there was this, um, this idea, this prophecy floating in the air, that there would be 12 tribes. He wanted it to, to be him. So he died, kind of put a test together. According to Rabbi Yehuda, he put a test together. The test was he gathered up 12 stones. He put them around his head. And before he fell asleep, he said to himself, I know tonight is significant. I've come to this Mokka, to this holy, hallowed ground. Now let's see, do these 12 stones fuse into one or not? If they do, I know that I am the one who's going to be the father of the 12 tribes that will become the Jewish nation. If they don't, I know it's not me. That's the test and that's exactly what happened. That when he woke up, they had become one, the 12 had become one. So let's continue in this a version of the Shemi Shmuel is put out by Rabbi Belovsky. I'm kind of working around his translated text, but if you want to see the full text, of course, it's available in the comments section on Zoom. It's also available on my website. It's available in the comments of the YouTube or in the comments of the SoundCloud. To begin to understand this, says the Shemi Shmuel, let us consider one aspect of unity, how it is destroyed. Fabulous idea. How do you know if something is when you know what it isn't? That's what the Shemish Shmuel is saying. When you know what something isn't, then you can somehow define what it is. My holy father, says the Shemish Shmuel, the Avnei Nezer, said that it is a fundamental principle of unity that if one adds something to a complete set, not only does the set have an alien member. If you take, if you have a set of something, whatever that thing is, let's say you've got uh, 20 um, red apples, and you now add a green apple. What does that make it? Well, it's still a bunch of apples, but you can't say, I have got a set of red apples, because you don't. The moment you have a green apple, 
in the set of red apples, it's no longer red. You can't define it. It totally undermines the definition. If it has an alien member, it is spoiled entirely. For example, Chazal indicate that if one needs to bind together Arba Minin, Lulav, Esrig, Hadassim, Arovois, the four species that we use when we shake about on Sukkot, we can assume that the tide bundle forms a discrete, a complete, an entire entity. If so, if you now add another entity, you want to tie a rose to the Arba Minim. The addition of an extra item, he says not a rose, he says a banana, will completely ruin the nature of the bundle. It's no longer Arba Minim. It's not Chamesh Minim, which has the right four. It is now no longer Arba Minim. You're done. The set is ruined. It will not be Arba Minim plus a banana, but it will be nothing of value at all. And he continues, we can apply this principle to the nature of the 12 tribes, of the 12 Shvatim. The Torah tells us, and there was a king in Yeshurun when the heads of the people gathered the tribes of Israel together. It's in Devorim, Perik Lamed, Gimel, Posuk Hay. The Torah describes Klal Yisrael as a united entity, a perfect and complete national body. Adding to it or subtracting for it, from it will totally destroy it. In other words, if you undermine Klal Yisrael by introducing foreign elements into it, or by drawing out elements that are part of it from inside it, you've completely undermined Klal Yisrael. Together, working in harmony, Israel, Yisrael, the Jewish nation, is a world unto itself, pulsating with vibrancy. Indeed, the number 12 is used to indicate completeness on a grand scale. In Jewish tradition, the number 12 is always the ultimate form of complete totality because of the uh, Yud Beis Shvatim, the 12 Shvatim. There are 12 zodiac signs. There's 12 months of the year. That's how we know that there's a year is because there's 12 months. Even when we have a 13th month, it's not really a 13th month. It's the 12th month doubled up. We have a, as it were, 60-day month instead of a 30-day month or 28-29-day uh, month. But you understand what I'm saying. It's, you've got a two-month month as opposed to a one-month month. And to correspond to that, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, says the Shem Mishmuel, if there was some interference or attempt at adding to this heavenly array, a disaster of cosmic proportions would ensue. It's inevitable. So too, if any additional subtractions were to befall Klal Yisrael, then its very purpose would be completely frustrated. Klal Yisrael comp comprises many different types of people, each with their own distinct personality. They've all got something to give. They all have something to contribute. And without that contribution, we're not complete. We don't exist. It's not like we exist, but we don't have something. We don't exist. How then, says the Shemish Moor, is this prized unity going to be achieved? How will it be maintained? How will we ensure our survival in this way? Each member of the nation has to subjugate his own personal needs and desires to those of God. 
It's not what you want that matters, it's what God wants from you that matters. And in this way alone can true unity be achieved, enabling the klal, the general, the universal, as it were, aspect of klal Yisrael in terms of its relationship with all other elements of klal Yisrael. Individual within each, which within the group has to have a relationship with every other individual in this collective sense, has to function as one organism with a single overall purpose. You see now how my little vort that I said earlier from Rebzev Lef, how it, how it folds into this idea that there's no such thing when you're one entity, that when the head rests on one place that the other part is upset. It doesn't exist. When I hold my glasses in this hand, this hand isn't upset, or my nose isn't upset that the glasses isn't on it. Every part of your body is part of one united organism. And perhaps we can suggest why it is that Abraham and Yitzchak weren't able to be the direct progenitors of the 12 tribes of the Yud Beis Shvatim and of Klal Yisrael. Why each of them had a child, as it were, didn't fit into the scheme of things. Abraham produced Yishmael and Yitzchak produced Esav and each of them could not continue in their father's footsteps. But in addition, they did produce a son who did continue the link because we know Avram had Yitzchak and Yitzchak had Yaakov. But this means that both Avraham and Yitzchak had fathered a set of two children, one good and one bad. What does the one good do? Continues in their way, but what happens when there's one bad? It undermines the possibility for this united, fused organism to, to further itself. You need a new beginning in order for that to happen. There can be no unity in a group where there's good and bad. For as we've seen, the existence of an alien entity within the group is going to spoil its very nature. And there was, in fact, no purpose in them, ha in them having more than one good son. For once there was no possibility of creating the unified set which comprises Klal Yisrael, they didn't need to have any more. The moment they had one bad son, they didn't need to have another ten, because it wasn't possible for them. The only way that it would be possible is if they had had only good children, only good sons. But the moment one bad, then that cannot continue. There's the message. The inherent message is that in order for something to work, it has to be completely in tune with every other aspect of the project. If there's any aspect of the project which is pulling away, the whole project disintegrates. Unity is a prerequisite for proper Jewish existence, and certainly it's a requirement before it even begins for the establishment of what we refer to as Klal Yisrael. Everyone pulling together for a single purpose in the cause of God. That's what Klal Yisrael means. And therefore, neither Avraham nor Yitzchak ever had a chance of establishing the 12 tribes, but it was possible for Yaakov. That's what he wanted to find out. Would he be the one? Was he going to be the father? Was he going to be the patriarch that would bring out, that would bring forth this nation? Well, if he has 12 and they become one, then that's possible. And that required a Yaakov Avinu, and he became the ultimate patriarch, the final, as it were, patriarch of the Jewish nation. When Yaakov left his parental home, he went to find a wife and to fulfill his life's mission. He wanted to know, is he going to be the one who is going to be successful in this mission? And when he went to sleep, he performed the test, 
which the Medrash described above talks about. And the unification of the stones, he thought to himself, would indicate to him whether or not he would be the one, in contrast with his father and in contrast with his grandfather, who would become the progenitor of Klal Yisrael, of the entirety of the Jewish nation. Unity points to subjugation of the individual's needs to the needs of the Klal, to the needs of the general, to the needs of everyone. Yaakov knew that if the stones joined together, this would symbolize that he would be the father of the tribes and Sadiqim, they would be who could unify together with each other. Even though they fought among each other, there was a unity of purpose. They never deviated from the purpose and ultimately that's why they came together in Mitzrayim. They made up with each other and there was this united front that enabled the creation of the Jewish nation when we emerged from Egypt and when we came out with Moshe Rabbeinu at our head at Yitzias Mitzrayim. I've got here a beautiful piece also taken from Aish, I have to tell you. I've heard this story before, but it concerns somebody with whom my family had a very close relationship. That's the late Rosh Hashiva of Mir in Yerushalayim, Reb Nosson Tzvi Finkel, Zechat Tzadik V'Kodesh Lebrocha, a very great man who, as many of you know, even though he was racked with Parkinson's disease and could barely function, continued to lead the yeshiva and, and watched it and helped it and nurtured it uh, until it grew into an, one of the biggest and most important yeshivas in the world. And he was a very kind and special man. And in this story told by uh, Rabbi Aaron Goldscheider, he tells this story about the time that um, Howard Schultz, who's the CEO of Starbucks, he had a meeting with Rav Nossensi Finkel. He wasn't the only one there. And he, um, he spoke to this group of business leaders. I don't know if it was in some corporate uh, um, conference room in downtown Manhattan in Wall Street. But wherever it was, Rav Nossensi Finkel spoke to them and this is what he said. He brought up the topic of the Holocaust. And he said, who can give me a lesson that we can learn from the Holocaust? An important, overriding, overarching lesson that we can draw from the horrors of the Holocaust. So one of the people who was there said, uh, maybe we can learn that we must never forget what happened. Uh, he nodded, that's interesting. Another one said, uh, we should never be bystanders when evil happens in the world. Another interesting lesson. Then he looked at the group. This is what he said. This is what Rav Nossin Finkel said. When you, whatever you have said, all the ideas you've come up with as to what we can learn, what lessons can be drawn from the Holocaust, they're all good. But we learnt something much more important, hopefully, from the Holocaust. We learnt something about the human spirit. And so let me tell you what I mean. As you know, during the Holocaust, Jews were transported in the most inhumane conditions. They were in, in uh, cattle trucks, on in trains, sometimes for days, and they would arrive in these horrific, there was no bathrooms, there was no facilities, there was no food, they were starving, they were thirsty, everything that could go wrong, as, it, as one can imagine, in someone's life, had gone wrong. They were in disaster, and they arrive in a concentration camp, and there's dogs barking, and there's Nazi guards who are screaming orders at them in German, and the doors come open, and they're coming out of the cattle cars, and Obviously, some of them are going to 
get killed and they were taken to the gas chambers and murdered. We're not talking about them. We're talking about the ones who survived. What happened to them? They're all sent into some creepy looking, disgusting looking barrack where six of them have to squeeze into one bed. And whoever's in charge of the barrack throws them a threadbare blanket. And the blanket's enough just about to cover one, maybe one and a half people. The six of them squeezed into the bunk. And that fellow has to decide, well, what am I going to do with this one blanket? Guy who's holding onto the blanket. What am I going to do? Are we going to fight over it? Am I going to have it and they're all going to die of freezing cold? I mean, they're in the middle of, of Eastern Europe or Central Europe. It's the winter. It's freezing cold. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? And he said, this is what Rabbi Finkel told this group and Howard Schultz of Starbucks was sitting in the room and he repeated this. He says, you know what he told us? This is what he said. It was during this defining moment that we learned the power of the human spirit. Do you know why? Because in almost every case, whoever it was would share the blanket with other people. Do you hear that? In almost every case, they realized it's not just about me. It's also about other people. And he said, look at you guys. You've got the blanket. You're at the top of the corporate ladder. You're at the most impressive place anybody could ever be. You've got the blanket. What are you doing with that blanket? You're hogging it for yourself? Or are you sharing it with others? What are you doing with the blanket? And it applies to every single one of our lives. What are we doing with that blanket? We've got whatever blanket we've got. We're all of us, we're holding a blanket. What are we doing with a blanket? Are we sharing it? Are we saying this blanket's not just mine? Other people are cold. They also need to get warm. Are we using our blanket, even if it means that we might be a little bit colder because we don't have the whole blanket, but we're sharing the blanket so somebody else can be warmer and that they shouldn't freeze to death. What is our role with the blanket that we're holding? That's what Rabbi Finkel told this group of high-flying corporate gurus at that meeting, wherever it took place, in the corporate boardroom. And when Chazal pictured this story of Yaakov Avinu, he's lying down, he's trying to rest himself, and they saw this story, it's fanciful, of course it is, that the stones are arguing with each other. Each one of them wants to be the first that gives and provides comfort to this frightened and lonely Yaakov Avinu on this dark night when he's running away from home. It's a very evocative image. And it suggests how we should respond when people are in need. And the Medrash says, you know what the Medrash says, you can lean on me I'm here for you. You can put your head on me. I'm available for you. And Yaakov Avinu gathered together 12 stones. And it's a symbol of the whole Jewish nation. And when every sect of the Jewish people cares deeply for every sector, you know, I, I always say this Vart, come to Vayikra, you know that uh, uh, we tend to skip over Vayikra in a sense because it contains so much about Karbonus and people who have got saras and all types of other things which don't seem relevant to us. But there's a very important posuk 
one of the most important psukim in the whole Torah is in the book of Ayikra. You know which pasuk I'm talking about? You have to love your reah, your friend, your compatriot, like like you love yourself. You know that that can be mistranslated to mean you have to love anybody who's just like you if they're like you I love them if they're not exactly like me you know the color of their shirt or the cut of their suit or the type of hat or streimel or beard or whatever it is that you consider to be a familiar a familiar identifying branding of your form of Judaism not quite like mine they didn't learn in this yeshiva, they learnt in that yeshiva. They didn't go to this school, they went to that school. They've got secular education, they don't have secular education. Somehow, if they are kamaycha, we say, oh, of course, I love them. They're just like me. I'll do everything I can to support them. If they're not quite like me, they don't fit into that little pigeonhole that I've created for myself. <laughs> they're not included. But that's not what the Pasuk means. Do you know what the Pasuk means? Just like you are different from everybody else. You love yourself, right? You don't say, okay, I've got this quirk and that quirk. I can't love myself because I'm too quirky. No, no, you don't consider yourself quirky. Obviously, everybody else is quirky, but I- I'm fine. I- I'm perfect, right? Aha, uh-huh. you're perfect. So is everybody else. If you are perfect, so is everybody else. And that's the message that Yaakov Avinu was sending by collecting up these 12 rocks, these 12 stones. They're all different. They were all different sizes and they were all different shapes. And each one of them wants to help. But they're not connecting to each other. And they fuse into one. Because every single one of them pulled together and ultimately became a much greater help to Yaakov Avinu and to the future of the Jewish nation because of their unity and their unitedness, their unity of purpose, and their recognition of the importance of each and every one of them as being part of the one unit that we call Klal Yisrael. It's a whole blanket. It's not little strips of cloth. It's a whole blanket coming together, helping as many people as possible. Rav Simcha Sheps was one of the Rosh Hashivas in Torah Vadas. He died in 1998. He was 90 years old. An incredible person. And Rabbi Frand quotes him in one of his Divrei Torah on the Parsha from some years ago. I saw it when it came out, but I looked for it because it's so beautiful and I want to share it with you. He asked a fantastic question. This is the question he asks. He says, it would have been more logical to request a symbolic sign that he would be the father of 12 tribes, right? And what did we say? What did the Medrash say? That he wanted to create a test to see whether or not he's going to be the father of 12 tribes. So what did he do? He took 12 stones and wanted to see if they would become one. What? The wrong way around, says Reb Simcha. It shouldn't be that. He should take one stone and see if it becomes 12. That would make much more sense. 12 stones joining to form one stone seems to be symbolizing the exact opposite of what he wanted to prove. It would, sounds like that he hoped he would have 12, but in the end, God was telling him he only would have one. 
Says Reb Simcha, there's another medrash. And it seems completely unrelated, but listen to what the medrash says. God told Avram Avinu, I'm going to make you into a great nation. It's in Perik Yud base of Bereshis, Posuk base. I will make you a great nation. etc. Avram said to him, why do you need to make me into a great nation? What's the purpose of what you're doing here? You've got 70 nations. You don't need me as well. There's 70 nations who are descended from Noach. And what will be so special? Why would you need to create another nation? And God says to him, listen to what he says. He says that the nation that will be descended from you is a nation about whom it will be said, Kimi Goy Godol. Who is this great nation? Goy Godol. Goy Godol. What does that mean? It's the we're going to get to the meaning in a minute. The nation that will come out of you, Avram Avinu, is special because it's a Goy Godol. Now, I want to ask you a question. If I was to ask you, how do you translate a great nation? What would you say? All right, it's a very simple answer. The one that is most numerically significant. Who's the greatest nation on earth in terms of numerical significance? The Chinese. There's 1.3 or 1.4 billion Chinese. I remember once the late Rabbi Lord Sachs said in a speech that he gave at my shul that the number of Jews in the world is equal to the number uh, um, that would be considered the statistical margin of error in the Chinese census, the Chinese population census. That means the number of Jews in the world, which is about 13 million, is so insignificant in terms of the Chinese population that if they made a mistake in that 0.1% or whatever it is, they wouldn't, it wouldn't even register. The statistical margin of error, that's who we are. So who's a great nation? Chinese, right? They're great in number. The Indians, there's a billion Indians on the Asian subcontinent. A billion Indians. How many Muslims are there in the world? There's a billion Muslims in the world. How many Christians are there in the world? More than a billion Christi Christians. So well, who's the great one? How, how do we define great? Listen, listen to what Ibsim Cheshep says. What's the meaning of Goygodl? If it's about size, the Goygodl is the Chinese nation or the Indians. And there's not that many Jews. And in fact... We've never been the world's Goygodl at any time in our history. So what's the Medrash talking about by saying that Avram Avinu was, as it were, bought off by God when God told him, don't worry about the 70 nations of the world, you're going to be a Goygodl. What are you talking about? And the answer is that there's a special connotation in the word Godl. It doesn't just mean big. In other words, it's not just about size. Rav Dessler says that the meaning of the word Godol, Gadol, is revealed to us when it appears first in the Torah. Remember the idea that wherever something appears for the first time in the Torah, that's the headquarters. That's where we can work out what something means and its significance. Where's the first time that we see the word Godol in the Torah? Do you know? You got any idea? So the Posik says in Bereshit, it's Perik Aleph Posuk Tezayin, talking about the sun. Es hamoir hagodel, the great light. It's referring to the sun. What does it mean? It means that the sun gives light. It means that the sun gives warmth and heat. Godel means the ability to give to others. 
the, the sun isn't called Godel because it's big. It's definitely not the biggest um, star in the universe. It means big because it provides, provides light and it provides heat for the world. You know what the technical understanding of the word Godol, Gadol is? The Hebrew word Gadol is not big in size. Happens to be big in size very often means the same thing. It's the ability and the capacity to do something for others, to be concerned about others. And when we talk about an Odom Godol, you ever heard that word? There's Gadolim in the world. When we talk about one of the Gadolim, what are we talking about? An Odom Godol, what does it mean? We're not talking about the size. You know, Reb Chaim Kanievsky in Bnei Brak is not six foot five. And, uh, you know, all the great Rebbes and Rosh Hashivas, those who have passed on and those who are alive and still with us today, we don't say that they're an Odom Godol because they happen to weigh 400 pounds or because they're six foot five. Why are they an Odom Godol? Because they are concerned with the needs of the community. That's the definition of a Godel. And now we can understand this dialogue between Avraham and Hashem. When he says, what do we need another? And he says, Kimi Goy Godel. What's he saying? There's plenty of nations in the world. It's true. There's a lot of Chinese, tremendous number of Indians. No question about it. Muslims, Christians. Unbelievable number of all of these people in the world. Numerically, they outnumber us. And we're totally insignificant. The Jewish nation is insignificant. However... Do you know what Hashem promised Avram Avinu? He said that he would make his descendants into a nation that is Godoil, by which he meant a nation of people that care about and for others and have the capacity to do. Do we see that evidence in the world? The Jewish nation is at the forefront of medicine, the forefront of science, the forefront of charity, charitable giving. I know I saw a report here in the United States a couple of years ago. I wrote about it in an article. The amount of charity that's given by the Jewish, by members of the Jewish community, by Jews, American Jews, compared to the rest of the population, it's so out of proportion to their numerical, their number within the U.S. population. We are a nation that is a godol, a goy godol. We're a godolim. Not because we're huge in number or huge in size, but because what we do for others is huge. And this idea also applies to Yaakov Avinu when he says, If I take 12 stones and they become one, this symbolizes a nation that is united among themselves. And if there is unity, there is this achdus. The members of this nation, they're not just concerned about themselves individually, but they're also concerned about others. There is no challenge that they cannot overcome. There's no hurdle that's too high and no uh, uh, problem that they can't overcome, that they can't get through. And when people are only into themselves, there's disunity. And when there's disunity, there's dysfunction. And when there's dysfunction, nothing can be achieved. Yaakov knew that the appropriate sign for him was not to turn 12 stones, uh, uh, one stone into 12. That would signify disaster. What he needed to do was take 12 stones and turn them into one. And then he would know that he was going to be the father of a Goy Godol. He would be the father of a nation that would do anything for themselves in general as a nation and for others even beyond their national boundaries. That is the message 
of the rocks that became one. That is the message of this rather fanciful medrash at the beginning of Parshas Vayetze. We'll leave it here. Thank you.